0: Hello and welcome to None of Us Is Yet A Robot, the podcast. My name is Emma Franklin and I'm a trans woman who makes theatre and performance and this podcast is a series of conversations that I'm having around the UK with other trans, non-binary and gender fluid people. So this is another special episode. I was invited to record this episode by Pink Fringe in conjunction with the safety map Uh, It's a project they're facilitating across the bank holiday weekend at the Marlborough Theatre. It's an invitation to come and share experiences of antisocial behaviour in Brighton, as well as sharing spaces where we feel welcomed and celebrated. It's the start of a larger conversation and it aims to highlight the huge concern of unreported crime in the community. Over the next three days, the safety map will evolve into a representation of LGBTQ safety in the city. This is a free event please come and share your stories. So I was speaking in this episode with the brilliant Rory Finn-Smith, whose current role is as the LGBT liaison for Brighton & Hove Police. Now, I haven't felt the need to offer a trigger warning before on this uh, series, but here we go. We talk about antisocial behaviour and crimes against gender transgression, uh, but we don't talk about any particular examples or go into any graphic details of violence. We also talk about things that can be done and although some of it is hard to hear, particularly the statistics that Rory mentions towards the end, I think it's a really important conversation and one that's going to be continued across the weekend. And we also talk about sport and trans health and I make a ridiculous proposition about there being a connection between being transgender and playing in goals so there's plenty of that sort of thing as well. I was recording back in Brighton, back at the wonderful Marlborough Theatre and of course I failed to find the perfectly quiet place to record so throughout there are some lively noises from students celebrating the last day of term outside but don't let that put you off. Um, enjoy and here is episode 6. We are the we are the well, hello again and welcome um, to another episode of Man of a City at a Robot. I'm back in Brighton and. My guest is Rory Smith Finn who's joining me today um, and with a slight difference because we have um, our topic that was set by the previous guests but also we're going to talk today about an event that's happening over Bank Holiday weekend um, here at the Marlborough Theatre which is where we're recording in the green room which is being facilitated by Rosanna Cade and um, was promoted by Pink Fringe and is a safety map. Um, So we'll be talking about that in a moment, but uh, first off, hello. Hello, thank you. Thanks for coming. Um, Can I ask, as I ask everybody, first off, how do you identify? Okay, that's
1: a a big question. Um, I guess I'll just start with the the gender side of things. Mm -hmm. I identify as genderqueer, um, but I live in... a male role and we go to work pretending to be a man and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I tend to say that I'm genderqueer or transmasculine um, and I'm queer, that's that's how I identify. Um, I guess I've got other identities too mm-hmm. but we'll be here all day if I can. <laughs> so get into it. What um, pronouns do you use? I don't have a preferred pronoun, mm-hmm. um, most people use he um, which I'm fine with but I don't equally don't mind if people use they or she even or anything um, so
0: I'm open I always and, tell people they can try the pronouns out on me if they want. Okay. Has it taken a while to get to get there? Yeah,
1: <coughs> it's it's not something that I know that probably can sound a bit flippant about it now mm. um, and certainly before I was on testosterone it was important to be he. Mm-hmm. But for me there was a real turning point so um, my day job is with the police, it's quite a masculine environment mm-hmm. um, you know, albeit plenty of women work there but mm-hmm. it still is quite a masculine environment and um, I also worked with a lot of gay men and um, they used to call me she mm-hmm. and at mm-hmm. first I felt a bit bristled by this yeah. and then after a while I was like thinking, oh, hang on a minute they're calling me she not because they're being disrespectful to me as a trans person mm-hmm. but because they're recognising me in my queerness and." they're recognising me as, as a gay man. Yeah. I'm not a gay man, but that, that's by the by. And realising that made me think, oh my god, I've got there. <laughs> and at that point, suddenly, the sting of Being yeah. Called She was just completely neutered. Yeah. And now I, I, I saw it almost like a, a badge of honour. So uh-huh. that, for me, was the real turning point. And now I'm like, so many meetings I go to, we start with, what's your preferred mm-hmm. pronoun? And I always feel like I'm the a bit of the pain the, the odd one yeah.
0: by saying I don't have a preferred pronoun anymore yeah. I think it's a really good I mean it's a really exciting place to get to though and it feels like that is the goal is to get to a point where we can transcend it I really like mm-hmm. the, this definition of transgender as not just going from one side to another crossing over but to transcend as well yeah. that it can be yeah. about going going beyond and um, and then actually another one of the people I interviewed on here, Rhiannon Stiles, was talking about how um, she identifies now as, as transgender as opposed to a transgender woman and mm. it's I think it's just all of these things are flow right and stages and we pass through them. Definitely
1: and, and I think that's the thing for me coming from a really queer point of view, mm. um, the idea of like these, these binary Two sides yeah. that you jump from one to the other it just seems it just it doesn't make any sense to yeah. me whatsoever, and so it's just like i 'm just me at the end yeah. of the day um, and you can use whatever words you want to about me mm-hmm. and I think the main thing is within all of that is respect so as long as you're being respectful mm-hmm. and you're recognizing a aspect of me mm-hmm. in the way that you're using those words yeah then that's fine because I 'm still being seen. yeah I think what's particularly painful. For for me, but I'm sure this is true of trans people of all stripes, is mm-hmm. that when those words of identification is where someone is deliberately not recognising yeah, something. Yeah. So when people are being misgendered with words, mm-hmm. that's a deliberate um, hurt upon someone. Yeah. And deliberately not recognising something that actually is quite obvious mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, I completely agree, the whole sort of transcending thing, it's just like, it's not not a straight one to the other.
0: Yeah, well, much as I think popular media and things would have us us believe. And I mean, there's definitely a point where, so I do identify as a woman, as a trans woman, um, and I use female pronouns, and that feels really important to me. But I'm also aware that I'm relatively early in my transition still, and... I think I'd like to get to a point where I can I mean I definitely do own a lot of my masculine traits and a lot of masculinity but I'd like to get to a point where I felt more able to do that in public like I feel I can do that in my work and I can do that in safe environments but I still feel to the general to to the world I don't feel particularly safe in in occupying that space but I do think it's it's somewhere I'd like to get to to re-embrace that notion of fluidity yeah and I I think there's there's something in that about sort of
1: power and privilege and things Mm -hmm. like that and I'm I'm really quite aware that when I say I don't have a preferred pronoun that is because I'm in a place of privilege now in that I pass 100% 100% of the time as, as male yeah. um, even though that's not my actual identity it's what I'm projecting into the world mm-hmm. and I pass as yeah. that and when I come out to people they have various reactions of like I can't quite believe it or, or, yeah, yeah. or sometimes they think bless them that I'm a trans woman and I haven't yet come out properly yeah. yet and, and things like that um, so I know that I, that's a position of, of privilege and a pri- position of safety as well Yeah, um, I can I don't have to worry about these, these things and that I want to be able to express my feminine side because mm. I think when I was coming out and, and first living as Rory, I was needing to express just the, the masculine side in mm. order to really imprint that upon people I met, yeah. um, so I had to hide, I could almost cut off the feminine yeah. side. I mean, not, not to a really horrible extent, I think I've always been able to express it, but um, I feel now I, I, I want that freedom to express the feminine side yeah. more and I used to be a drag king before I transitioned okay. and that's, that for me was my sort of route into realising my gender identity okay. a bit more. and so for me when I was um, I felt a bit sad about having to give it up being a drag king mm-hmm. in order to become a trans man yeah. essentially so I was quite excited at the prospect that maybe one day I could do drag again but yeah. perhaps as a drag queen yeah, um, and therefore start performing femininity again mm-hmm. and things like that um, but I definitely think there's there's that dynamic, um, depending on kind of your relative position mm. in society to do with gender and your gender presentation, mm-hmm. really is not so much about that safety about whether you, you can be in that position to kind of express femininity yeah. in that way or express masculinity and, and what is safe.
0: It's really I mean I think so interesting given what's going to be going on this weekend, which is this, this the safety map the safety um, blanket that. Rosanna's working on, but because I feel like we were talking about this last night, Rosanna and I that safety is at the heart of it, that there was a point so over the last six months I had a really bad um, reaction to the oestrogen that I take Um, I was put onto a different uh, brand and I had a huge series of facial rashes, it was really unpleasant Um, and as as a I think someone's trying to get in this is the feature of these <laughs> podcasts: is people trying to. It's, it's picking rooms that are not particularly secure. Um. Oh, okay. Hi guys, I just need to get this in a minute. Sorry, no sorry, no sorry. I thought you were. Talking no, no, we're just recording. Sorry. That's all right. I We were like. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. we've got the students outside, all yeah, <laughs> <like>, as well, <laughs> like fighting it's, uh, no, I'm sorry. usually <laughs> raucous for yeah. a, yeah,
1: it's not normally, it's, it's not normally like that, <laughs> it's just because <laughs> they know, sorry, <laughs> on the door.
0: Okay. see you later, see you later. Take care. um, yeah, safety, safety and privilege, that yeah. I feel, so during that period when I had this big rash, it was like a real. I felt a real step back in how I was being viewed by the world. I couldn't shave sometimes. I couldn't wear makeup, and suddenly I was. I felt that I went from a place of being, some of the time, read as um, being a cis woman, and some of the time being read as trans, and some of the time being read as a cis man. That I was exclusively being read as a man again, and then that became quite difficult to to dress how I wanted to, to dress and, and all the rest of it. And I'm beginning to come out of that again now, which is hugely um, positive. But then within that time, there also was a real realisation of returning to the safety of that, A, the privilege of being read as a, as a man on the days when I was just wearing a sweatshirt and whatever and just not bothering, even though I felt crap in myself and i didn't and i wasn't and i wasn't healthy i was being accorded male privilege again and then even when on the days when i would wear a dress or something and then be read as a man in a dress there even was a kind of a safety around that that there's people would sort of people would because they felt they were reading it and they're reading it correctly it wasn't like positive responses but at least people felt they knew where they were with it whereas now as i'm back into this point of sometimes passing that's what feels dicey because now what i what i get is um a lot of i don't want to say female privilege because i don't know if it is privilege but when you're when i do get treated um as a woman which is a horridly horrid statement and of course it's not entirely what i mean but when i'm well, when'm read as a, when I'm read as a cis woman and particularly men treat me in a certain way, sometimes that's really nice and weirdly nice. sometimes it's really invasive and I find that I, I get touched more or I get um inappropriate kind of um closeness like that then i carry then there is always a fear of at what point is this person going to realize and read me as trans or read me as a man, and that's where I feel unsafe always, is in that fear of when the shift's gonna come, and particularly like on transport or like in late at night and stuff. Because it's one thing to get a whistle or called out in the street it's another thing that if I then respond in my voice that potentially outs me, how is that person going to respond? Sorry, that was a long convoluted <laughs> way, of get, way of getting to somewhere. But I do think there's a, I mean, I do wonder if there is a difference between um, the ability to embrace the kind of gender fluidity, if you're male assigned at birth and coming from that side of things, to female assigned at birth. And I think that's to do with misogyny and the way that we under, undervalue female, um, or s- sexualize anything that is female, seen as female presentation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I mean, I completely agree with your conclusion I think, mm-hmm. I, I mean, as a, I, I count myself as a feminist. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's impossible to be trans and not be a feminist because when you've seen both sides of the coin, mm-hmm. um, you, you just have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, I think a lot of it is to do with, with the patriarchal society and misogyny and um, that it sounds like for you, you're having to play two different types of women mm. that's of uh, the the passing trans woman who might even be seen as cisgendered mm. and that of the non-passing trans woman who might be seen as maybe even being male mm. um, and how both of them have particular uh, misogynistic uh, oh, what's the wor- word but kind of traps yeah. of kind of Horribleness that can happen to yeah, you, yeah. and um, yeah, I mean, like it's—it's. I think there's so much more safety in passing as male, mm-hmm. and like it kind of—I can hear from what you're saying, like kind of um, when you when you when that happened to you, and you were sort of going back into boy mode, mm-hmm. if, you, if you forgive those terms. Yeah, um, that although it gave you that relative safety inside, you might have been dying. Yeah. And um, I guess I've experienced the opposite in that through um, masculinization with, with testosterone mm-hmm. is that I've gained a certain amount of safety, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call it safety actually. I've gained, um, uh, I've certainly gained privilege mm-hmm. um, and I think what it is is more that people will listen to me more. Mm and people are less likely to cross me Yeah. but even then I end up occupying the zone of being a small man and not a big man and yeah. I feel quite vulnerable a lot of the time Yeah, yeah. and I think um, I think, uh, t- really speaking from the, the sort of masculine, trans masculine side of things it's like I think it's quite easy for people to judge trans men as well you know you turn into men and you disappear off and there's no safety issues. Mm. And I've been, I've, been, I've been on testosterone for coming up to six years now mm. um, and I still worry about walking into the toilets mm. and I've, I've been living at, out as, as a trans man using male toilets um, for longer than I've been on testosterone probably mm. coming up to about nine years in total um, but I still have that fear going yeah, in yeah, yeah. and I still have mm-hmm. that fear of what if men realize that I'm a man that wasn't born that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what if they then decide to, I don't know. You think of the, you think of films like Boys Don't Cry, and you yeah, go, yeah, yeah. well, I think I was thinking, that could happen to me, mm-hmm. and it terrifies me. Mm. And so it's this constant weight that I'm not quite man enough yeah. in order to uh, secure myself mm-hmm. and, and perhaps even those around me. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's been really important to learn how to act out being a tough man, so yeah. learning how to fight for example, and um, getting fit and getting a bit muscle in me so that I can kind of defend myself yeah. somehow, has been my response to that fear that still hangs over me yeah, yeah. and I think part of that also comes from having been raised as female and what that does to you in terms of your socialisation is you're, you're always told to be quiet mm-hmm. and that you shouldn't fight and all these sort of things. And I think not just the raising as female, but for for me, raising in a Christian household, so mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have like necessarily been so rebellious because there's always God watching on me and things okay. like that. So um, to be able to to stake a bit of space in the way mm-hmm. that men do just comes completely unnatural to me. So I find mm-hmm. it really hard to do that and um, I'm not good at raising my voice. Mm -hmm. So the amount of times I'm cycling down the street and someone walks out in front of me and what you should do is shout at them, not because necessarily you're angry, but because you might just run them over and they need to know. And I can't even raise my voice in that state. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I find it really fascinating how in different ways our different identities Mm -hmm. as trans people, there's still all these facets of, of vulnerability and feelings of safety or lack of safety yeah. that um, isn't so cut and dry about whether you're male or female, mm. or whether you're trans or trans-feminine, or where you're at in your transition yeah. even.
0: It's, I mean, it's really hearing you talk again, uh, talk about that, that bathroom experience, and of, co- of course, and it's a different experience, but it's related, and just this kind of threat of violence this threat of violence that hangs, hangs over trans people is, is something that I didn't know about pre-transition, not like I made a decision to transition but you know in the life before this is where I am and as I was beginning to kind of you know to learn about what trans, what trans was yeah that kind of threat of violence that's just constantly there and just recently I found like in recent years I really have a low tolerance for violence in films or TV or anything at all and it wasn't like I used to be super into it as a thing but I find now that I'm re- I really don't want <laughs> to see it and I think it's because there's, there's, there is more of a chance of encountering it now I feel in my life which is not something I ever felt, ever felt as a white cis man That's really interesting
1: (laughs) because I've been, um, every time I watch something violent on TV, or a film or something like that, um, I get sympathy pains, honestly, I do. I get a weird sensation in the back of my legs. And I've always had it, but I kind of thought, you know what, I'm I'm seemingly a man in my 30s. I should be tough enough to be able to watch violence on TV and actually I should enjoy it somehow. (laughs) And I just don't, I can't bear it it's interesting you say that because actually I think there's some truth in that for me too Mm. is that I feel that it's more, there's a greater risk now Mm. for me to encounter violence than before when I was trying to live as as female. Mm. I remember walking home once, um, I used to work in a pub when I was in my early 20s and um, so I'd walk home after after hours obviously and this guy, I mean I had headphones in whilst walking and this guy was sh- clearly shouting at me although I was quite oblivious to it mm. and I only became aware that he was shouting at me when he threw a Coke can at me at which point I turned around and yeah. kind of, I, don't, I don't know if I said anything because again I've was never been able to raise my voice too much but um, he clearly saw that actually I wasn't back then uh, male mm. but sort a more sort of female androgynous and suddenly he was like oh no sorry thought you were a dude wow. and I was just like right so if I was a guy, that's acceptable then. Yeah, but because yeah. you've now identified me as female, that, that's not acceptable. So, and, and we know, statistically speaking, that um, men, younger men, are more likely to be victims of violent crime mm-hmm. than women are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's precisely because of this, this kind of like, it's somehow acceptable yeah. uh, to attack other men. Yeah. And it's generally men doing the perpetrating violence. Yeah. So, I think this really links into what you're saying about misogyny, and mm. that as trans people, it's that misogyny that's, that's provoking that violence, whether mm-hmm. it's that misogynistic reaction to, to trans women or that misogynistic reaction to cis women. Yeah, um, yeah. Either way, as, as female identified, you're a little bit screwed by it. Yeah, you know. totally. Um, and for me, it's still that same misogyny when it comes to, to violence because. I worry that someone's going to see me as a trans man and attack me because of that. Mm.
0: Yeah, I felt um, I felt a big shift of responsibility when I, I, mean, especially when I first was was coming out and first was um, presenting as female. That I'm reasonably tall. I'm not epically tall, but I'm like five ten, and being with My cis female friends, who were generally a lot shorter, and being really aware of them becoming my protector, as opposed to me becoming their protector. I had this with um, with Abby really clearly up um, up in Glasgow a couple of years ago, and we were on the on the on the subway and getting grief from a person, and her putting herself in between that person and and me. And it wasn't violent, but it was you know it was. abusive language and I felt so guilty which is misogyny saying that it's my responsibility as a person assigned male at birth to be the protector yeah. and not hers but I felt so like it felt so kind of odd to be the, to be that victim to be in that role mm-hmm. and lots of yes, things I didn't um, see I would haven't <laughs> realized we didn't get beyond how do you identify Um, and it would be really good to just kind of um, introduce some of the things that you do but maybe before the the obvious role which we talked about before um, the trans can sport because you've been talking about learning to fight and i think this is a really really exciting um, thing that's happening down here in brighton and i've benefited from it because i went to some of the yoga classes Um, but yeah can you explain yeah, sure. But,
1: um, so transport is my little baby at the moment. Yeah, and I'm really proud of the work that we've done so far. Um, it started off but about a year and a half ago. I started um, doing pers- uh, personal training mm. uh, with uh, my trainer, Markita. Um, because I was, I was just realising I was going to the gym the whole time and nothing was happening. Yeah. And I was, I also got realised if I don't do something now, I'll be getting too old to do something. And my knees have started clicking, yeah. and just horrible things. From, I'm in my early thirties, and so I was like, now is the time. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to invest a bit of money in, t- in getting personal training. Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's expensive one to one stuff, but. Um, and I remember the first session I did with Marquita. Uh, And I met her here in Marlborough Mm -hmm. um, because she was recommended by other people that work and drink here. Um, And our our first session I was kind of said, so uh, what do you know about um, trans fitness? Mm -hmm. And she was like, "Uh, I don't know, I don't know anything. And to her credit, she went off and um, she doesn't sleep very well. So she woke up in the middle of the night and just started Googling <laughs> and um, spent the entire night researching stuff. And I think, bless her, my poor partner the next morning got an ear full <laughs> of it. But she came back and she, she found out all this stuff about yeah. trans fitness and, and just you know, various different things that would enable her as a, as a personal trainer to, to cater yeah, wow. a bit more precisely to trans I mean, I'm certainly not her, her only trans client, mm-hmm. but I think I was the first person to ask that question. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had a really good sort of uh, personal uh, trainer client relationship ever mm-hmm. since. And so I was kind of, I saw the benefit it was having on me, not just physically, um, mm-hmm. which obviously was good, it was getting me fitter, I was getting stronger, um, I was losing a bit of weight in the process. Uh, but most notably, my confidence was really changing. Mm. I was becoming happier, healthier, and just more kind of, uh, I felt more capable, mm-hmm. and that increased my, my confidence and my kind of ability to deal with mental health issues. Yeah. So I'm generally on an even keel, but from time to time I'll have, um, I'll go into a little bit, a big dip, and mm-hmm. I'll just eat loads of ice cream and play Xbox, and um, just not want to talk to anyone yeah. and feel a bit miserable. And so it kind of helped me deal with those lows mm-hmm. quite a lot um, so we tried because um, I was like we 've got to do we 've got to do something for trans people mm-hmm. we 've got to do some maybe some some f to m uh, fitness classes mm-hmm. and get because she her, her particular thing is fighting so uh, boxing and mixed martial yeah. arts and things like that uh, so she was teaching me how to box and stuff, and I was sort of thinking, well, not only is this great fitness but it's also about um, that sense of having power in yourself that if you got into that difficulty, knowing how to throw a punch, yeah. although that's not the, the most advisable thing to do, yeah. it's a good it's a really reassuring thing to know how to throw a punch, how yeah. to kick, how to block someone, all these kind of things. So I was like, we need to get some trans guys along mm-hmm. and give them these skills, and they would really need it. Um and we managed to get a session together um and people were really interested. But there wasn't a huge take-up and mostly I think people just couldn't afford it. Yeah. So um, I managed to get hold of some funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got initially £1,500 from the Brighton Hove Wellbeing Fund
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and designed some sessions off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we launched in January this year. Um, we got a friend of ours to, to design a logo for mm-hmm. us. Um, he's also part of the trans community. Yeah. Um, and just sort of just started doing it, yeah. and it's been amazing. The, the results so far, we've, we I think we've done about 24-25 sessions, mm-hmm. all free at point of access. Yeah. Um, so people just need to rock up. They obviously need to have their own trainers or well kit yeah, things like that. Um, we've been doing fighting, so it's kind of um, learning to box and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it's essentially it's loads of cardio, mm-hmm. and it's a bit sort of uh, it's a lot of fitness in it. Um, but it's also that confidence building. Mm-hmm. We've been doing yoga that you've been yeah. to, um, which is um, has so many benefits. Like really, holistic so thing. important. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've also done lifting, so people can kind of learn how okay. to safely weight lift. Yeah. Um, we supported the trans swimming um, by providing some spaces for free, mm-hmm. and. Um, we we did try to do a sort of a cardio only session okay which sadly only one person turned up to uh-huh. which to be fair isn't a huge surprise and we're gonna be really want to do it to yeah you. and most people don't want to sweat that much yeah <laughs> um, but yeah I mean it's been great and we're gonna we're looking to do football and, and other yeah I'm excited about
0: the football I've, I've signed up to the football oh, excellent. post yeah cool. um, and I'm excited I'm moving down here permanently in the the summer, so I'm hoping there'll be some trans football to get involved with. Although I was talking to um, a friend down here, we were both saying how excited we were and then we both said, we were talking about what we played and we both played in goal and I was wondering if there is a, I I wonder if there's a direct correlation to recognising you're transgender and recognising that you played in goal as a child because of the, I don't know, there was always something slightly other about being the goalkeeper as opposed to being the uh, the striker so yeah. I don't know I wonder if there's going to be 15 people are going to turn up and they're all going to be goalies
1: maybe I don't know because <laughs> the thing I find about football really fascinating when it comes about trans people is that you have um loads of trans women who are amazing footballers mm-hmm. who've sadly had to stop playing football for loads mm-hmm. of different reasons and loads of trans guys that want to play football that just don't have a clue yeah, yeah. and so and for both sides it's almost impossible to just go out yeah. and play football recreationally and i remember the first time i met uh, a friend of mine juliet jakes who mm-hmm. writes for the guardian we were both at um trans fabulous arts festival in london i think yeah. it was like 2007 or 8 yeah. or something and it was a picnic in, in the afternoon on a Sunday in Bethnal Green and um, there was a f- like friendly five-a-side football going for anyone that wanted to do it yeah. and my girlfriend at the time said, when are you going to play football, can you go now? <laughs> and so I kind of like very sheepishly went and joined this team and um, Juliet was, was, on, was on the side that I ended up on
0: and she just, she kicked ass. She's a big football fan though, right? Yeah, and she's really good at it <laughs> as well.
1: I mean, I think it's Norwich City or something, she yeah. sports, but she's amazing and we, that's how I became friends with them, was, was on the football pitch, yeah. um, so I really want to get involved in football because I don't know how to play it yeah. and I would love to, because I feel yeah. like I need to know, it's a bit <laughs> embarrassing that I've not really played it, because yeah. I learnt um, netball and hockey when I was at school, yeah. um, whereas football and rugby I've never See, had an shooting.
0: I loved playing netball, and I, I mean this is, this is not like now... I'm sure this is not significant to trans status. Other than I really enjoyed netball when I was allowed to play it at junior school, and then was very disappointed when I was forced into rugby, and football. And I quite enjoyed. I ended up. I learned how to like football. Football was my was my in with with the boys. That was the way that because even as a drama kid, you know, theatre kid, mm. I didn't. I sat outside of. Um, of what, what quite a lot of the norms for, for my school were, but football was the way in and I'm, and I grew to really love it and I learned to get better I'm just not I'm not one of the uh, amazing <laughs> amazingly talented footballers. I'm more of an enthusiast, enthusiastic and a bit old now so
1: well I don't think you're ever really too old but um,
0: yeah I mean we're trying to find a coach mm-hmm. um, and
1: what we'd really like to do is if someone's like really into football and have been playing it for years and would like to learn to coach is mm. to kind of give them an opportunity to actually do that. That's and we kind of um, subsidize their, I don't know how you learn to coach, um, but if there's something that, you, some course you go on with, yeah, subsidize yeah. the course in exchange for coming and doing it for free for trying to yeah. go into football, basically. Um, so we're trying to find coaches and it's, it's easier said than done, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but it's definitely something we want to do. And I think yeah. there's, I think it'd be, re- team sports, because of that, the whole th- what you're saying about being in goal I think a lot of us um, maybe we did sports in primary school and got on teams I mean mm-hmm. I was on the netball team at primary school but when it came to secondary school I sort of dropped out of doing sport in favour of doing music Yeah. Um, because you kind of felt how it seemed to go as a teenager um, and I think the whole gender thing I think um, it's that's where you come acutely aware of mm. puberty happening mm. and it's a, there's a significant drop-off for people there. Yeah. So, um, I think team sports really bring people together and I think there's a lot to be said for that, whereas yeah. things that are quite individualised, people are in their own comfort zones with that because yeah. they don't have to talk to other people and they don't yeah, have yeah. to socialise, but I think I like to be quite holistic about the idea of trans can sport, and yeah. I think doing football would be so beneficial for so many people. I think it'd
0: be great. I think it'd be a real laugh as well, because, I mean, there was a point with, so the yoga session that I did was, it was so brilliant. It was so welcome. I was here. I wasn't very well because of this skin thing, and I was feeling, it was one of those occasions where I'd signed up to it, and I was like, oh, you know, maybe I won't go. Maybe I just won't go, and then forced myself to um, attend, and it was so brilliant. I had such a great... I only got to do one session unfortunately because then they took a break um but i was so pleased that i did go but in a room full of it's pretty well attended there were like 12 people there maybe 12 15 people there lots of other trans women who i didn't know but we didn't meet anyone because we all came in yoga's like it's it's very private and so there was a sort of like don't really look at anyone don't get you know and I, i felt a little bit sad about that, that there wasn't that kind of natural social side to it as well because it would have been nice to have had a chat with people yeah
1: and, and we're kind of aware of that mm. and there's nothing to stop people going to the pub afterwards mm. but i think sometimes you need someone in a sort of social leadership role to kind yeah, of yeah. say i'm into the pub do you fancy coming along yeah. and um maybe people don't like doing that after yoga i don't know but i think it would be really nice if people did start socializing mm. afterwards and maybe people just want to run home and shower and things like yeah, that, I guess. it's that too. Um, but, we're, I mean, we're, we're hoping to do some sort of social events and things like that okay. to kind of bring people together a bit. That'd be great. But, yeah. And um, then there's, there's Trans Pride coming up, mm-hmm. so I'm hoping we can do something for Trans Pride. Yeah. On the Sunday of Trans Pride, um, is normally like the, the picnic and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it also is Pride Diversity Games on that Sunday. What's uh, that? So, yeah. Um, what we call Big Pride in Brighton and which is the the main sort of LGBT yeah. gay pride. Um, they do more than just the, the big kind of weekends in mm-hmm. August, but they do like uh, they do the Pride Doggy Show the week before, <laughs> and they also do things called Pride Diversity Games, okay. where they get LGBT um, t- sports teams to come and compete with each other. Um, so I think they're doing a football tournament, they're okay. doing a rugby tournament, all kinds of different things and on the Sunday they're doing more sort of uh, family friendly mm-hmm. sort of sports day for everyone rather than people that are very particularly into sports mm. and it be like I think it would be like a fun oh, run yeah. and maybe some tag rugby and, and some bits and bobs yeah. like that so okay. I've been trying to get involved with that um, to help them with the trans inclusion mm. because quite often the T is there only in, in yeah, acronym yeah. and not in anything else and because sport is so gendered mm. that I kind of I wanted to help them so hopefully we'll, we'll have some sort of I mean, it depends. I'm probably really hideously hungover on that day, <laughs> anyway. Um, but hopefully, there'll be opportunity for people to go and take part, yeah, in that yeah. if they don't want to take part in something else, I mean, it
0: is such a gender thing, isn't it? I'm trying, like, because it feels like trans only comes up in sport when it's really controversial, or when, or when it's like a slur that's being used against someone. Like historically, all the kind of you know athletes who've been who who were called out for being too masculine or too feminine or having things stripped, and then you've got this whole thing with Caitlyn Jenner where suddenly people don't want to refer to her don't want to acknowledge the uh, like oh we've lost an Olympic star there was this whole kind of thing going around wasn't there And it's like you haven't lost an Olympic star she still won those Olympic medals you know she's still done all that but um you know just recently like there are there are trans athletes coming through aren't there there's I know there's someone in um, one of the big American universities the trans guy who's on the swimming team at Yale I think maybe
1: yeah I saw that um,
0: and and that's pretty radical and then there's like Fallon Fox who's doing the, the fighting I don't know if you follow them at all is a trans woman who fights I don't know much about fighting I think like ultimate fighting or mixed martial arts or something anyway she's fucking hard and <laughs> badass um, and really co- and she's really cool she's really um I found the things that I have read of her or seen of her that she's very articulate, and she's experienced a lot of trans misogyny and transphobia because she fights as a female fighter, and um, she's really good. And at the point where she was, where she began to was beginning to win, people were then beginning to cast aspersions as to whether she should be fighting in that category and all of these things. Um, but she speaks really articulately about that. Yeah, you should check her out. Yeah. In the States. Exactly.
1: Okay. But, but you're right, I mean, there, there is more coming through, and there's there's also that, all that stuff about um, these trans guys that are ending up on Men's Health magazine. Okay. Um, Aidan Dowling, I think his name is, right. an American guy, and I think there's a German guy as well, who have made history by being the first trans men to appear on the front cover of, um, I think it's Men's Health. Wow. Uh, or men's fitness. Is that a kind of
0: top off front cover?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like proper um, abs, kind yeah. of things like that. Um, which I I've always find it really amazing to any trans athletes. I find mm-hmm. them so in- inspiring. In fact, again, back at this, this Trans Fabulous Festival, yeah. it was a really, I think for me, it was such a pivotal moment in my um, uh, trans transition sort of coming out sort of thing. Yeah. For me, it gave, really emboldened me, it kind of made me realise. Do you know what? Being trans is an awesome thing, yeah. and nothing to be ashamed of, yeah. and um, it really helped in that sense. But I remember seeing this, um, this I don't know what you, what, the, what it is, an acrobat, I guess I think is the mm-hmm. title, and he, um, he just did this awesome sort of like, uh, he was almost like a, I'm going to say like a squirrel, because that makes it sound really bad. <laughs> I was in the park yesterday, and a squirrel was doing pretty much the same thing, but just sort of climbing really intricately around sort of pillars and under the stairs. It was like this sort of warehouse space we were in. And anyway, he was just wearing like a pair of pants or something Mm -hmm. like that so you could see every muscle in his body and he was just completely ripped and Mm -hmm. had control of every inch Mm -hmm. of his body. And I was like, there's no way on earth this guy is a trans man, how is this possible? I don't get it, how is he so fit? Because I was, I was looking at myself under my body and I was just like, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, there's too much wobble there. Uh-huh. And I was just realised, do you know what? We might have not been born in the right bodies insofar as how it fits our gender identity mm-hmm. and things like that. But that doesn't mean there's anything inherently wrong with our bodies. Mm-hmm. And that we—that doesn't mean we can't be capable of these things mm-hmm. if we want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And the crucial thing about if we want to... Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, okay, there's the other bits about genetics, but... Yeah there's nothing about being trans that inherently stops us from doing these things Mm -hmm. it's just the transphobia of of sports and society that Mm -hmm. prevents us from taking part in things and i think it's 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 interesting when we kind of consider these athletes that become controversial like uh, Casta Semenya i Mm always think is an interesting example so she's the south african um, uh, middle distance runner i think i think she sort of does four to eight hundred meters or something. I don't know if that counts as middle distance. But um, And she's uh, female-identified, cisgender, mm-hmm. but because she started winning, mm-hmm. other athletes were like, oh, she's really a man. Yeah. And um, she was made to undergo these really quite horrible gender tests mm-hmm. by the um, Olympic organisation mm-hmm. or something to that effect, World Athletes uh, Federation or something. Which... When you read what was going through, it was kind of well. This is the checklist that they make trans people yeah. go to through in order to transition. Yeah. Loads of psychological tests, loads of kind of hormone tests, chromosomes, yeah. stuff like that, to prove whether she was male or female. Um, and so, I think there's this the trans sport. A lot of it stems from this idea of an unfair competitive advantage. Mm. When really, it's it's quite the opposite. Yeah. Because I accept the idea that. Um, that you your hormones do have something to play. I've definitely got stronger by mm-hmm. taking testosterone. Yeah. I know that even before I started working out, because I'd go shopping and suddenly the bags yeah. became lighter. Yeah, I've definitely
0: I've definitely lost exactly muscle and, exactly and, and strength. so
1: they, they the new guidelines is that um, if you can prove that your regular hormone range is within that normally seen to be mm. either male or female, then you're allowed to compete. Yeah. So I'd be now able to compete in the men's mm-hmm. um, and trans women would be fine if it's within that certain mm-hmm. range and crucially if it's been for x number of years mm-hmm. it's been that way um, which is fine, I don't disagree with that the problem being though is how you, you what happens in that, the process of getting to that space mm-hmm. so if you are an athlete and you've been training for all these years and you come out as trans suddenly you have to stop competing or doing anything mm-hmm. for what, three to five years mm-hmm. before your hormones go into the right re- range again. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is is the the tragedy and the hurdle. But yeah.
0: I don't know how we're gonna. Well, I mean, just the, the how binary the world of sport is in general. There was a I listened to a tennis um, player on the radio, and I don't know who it was. All I can remember is that she was um, the first. She was a, a black tennis player, and she was she'd won something, and that was the that was the story. And they were asking her about. She' play five sets or something and she was like, yeah, of course we could. like it's you know <laughs> the fact that women play three sets of tennis rather than five sets of tennis not because we can't play five sets of tennis, it's just the way that the the system is. but um, oh mixed, that was why they were talking about gender because I think she'd won a mi- she she was it was in a mixed tennis uh, tournament. but um yeah, like it's just always I, I never really understood why there was isn't just more mixed. Well, there aren't more mixed sports in any case. For sure. And and going back to the primary school netball, that was always mixed. Yeah, of course. Because I remember,
1: I mean, playing against uh, different primary schools, and they kind of, some of them, I grew up in Devon, so some of these primary schools back then were tiny, and there were about ten kids in the entire school. So if you wanted a netball team of seven, (laughs) you had to include the boys. There was no two ways around it. Um, And that was always mixed. and it's just, it, I think it's this idea of this unfair advantage yeah. because of physiology and stuff like that.
0: But as soon as you're playing a team sport, if you've got a mixed team and you've got mixed teams, then it doesn't matter anyway. And, and it's not all about fitness. Sometimes it's about um, quick thinking, st- strategy. And everybody's without. different anyway. Everybody's yeah. body is different anyway. Yeah, so exactly. I'm, I'm aware of of time. This is I'm having such fun. But um, I do want to get on to talking about the... The gender map and also i 've got my mind is thinking about this uh, this topic that that was set, which was the end and I feel like in a way we 're kind of covering the end with with this sort of apocalyptic um, talks of violence and things that we began with, and um, maybe other endings but i 'm just pulling up the information for um, for this event, but in the meantime it- would you mind explaining um, your other role, which is what connects you to the safety map um, sure. Yeah, so um, my day job is with Brighton
1: Hove Police, mm-hmm. um, and m- my job title broadly is the LGBT Liaison. Um, it's a civilian role, I'm not a police officer, um, although I work alongside police officers. Um, is My role is to, to support LGBT people in Brighton Hove to contact the police, um, help them report hate crime, um, help them if they have reported a hate crime, if there's any particular issues, I can. Support them with, um, which is really varied in the different kind of aspects I get involved in. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the flip side, I support the police to understand LGBT issues. Um, I do do lots of sort of uh, internal training, um, lots of really informal sort of briefings and bits and bobs. I support colleagues if they've got a particular case and mm-hmm. they've got an LGBT person and, and where to signpost them for support or how to approach a certain thing or to give them quite specialist advice. About, I mean my tr- specialism is the trans stuff because yeah. as a trans person um, I can really give them what they need on that. Um, but also other bits and bobs like some mm-hmm. things to do with HIV or mm-hmm. um, bisexual or you know. All, all kinds of things. So it's a really um, varied job, and it's quite hard to
0: explain really succinctly what yeah, I yeah. do. But um, well, you've done well. Um, <laughs> how, I mean, how do you find? We were talking a little bit about that kind of <clears throat> those loyalties and whether that's a split, a split, focus. But I mean, how do you how do you find you're accepted within the within the police force? Like how do, how do the regular coppers view that role? Um, for the most part um, really positively
1: yeah. uh, I mean to be fair I work for probably the most um, pro-LGBT division mm. of police yeah. in probably arguably the, the entire country but Brighton & is quite special in that way mm. um, so many of my colleagues are gay or lesbian yeah. um, that it's sometimes you're in an office and you're trying to find the straight people um, and I'm not kidding mm. um, and even those that are straight I mean because they're surrounded by so many of their colleagues being LGBT, yeah. then it, it's really not an issue. So for the most part, everyone's really pro um, LGBT equality, mm-hmm. and it's 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 a really nice environment to work for. We've got loads of corporate stuff that adds to all of that as well. Um, I think really, I mean, it's very much in the rarity that I've come across someone that's kind of doesn't understand the point of the role, mm-hmm. or doesn't think there needs to be. Special stuff for LGBT people' yeah. um, they're just they really are on the minority and, and just need a bit of a, kind of a clip from
0: me. I mean because i don 't really, really know how, how the police force works, but obviously like it 's regional is it are the regions very autonomous, or is this a role that every single police region has it 's really autonomous, so right. um, the
1: policing for this area is Sussex Police, mm-hmm. which covers uh, Brighton Hove. East Sussex and West Sussex yeah. and Gatwick Airport um, so you also have things like Kent Police or Surrey Police yeah, or yeah. Hampshire or the Met Police which covers London and they are autonomous of each yeah. other so each one has a chief constable um, and they police just that area um, my role is really quite particular to Brighton Hove so uh-huh. there's not even emulated so Sussex is divided into these different divisions of mm-hmm. Brighton Hove East Sussex West Sussex my role isn't even on those other different divisions it's mm-hmm. just within Brighton Hove and that is really because there's um, to, um, roughly, they don't know the exact figure, but between 10 and 20% of the local population identifies as LGBT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. t so there's that need, which is't have at least one person <laughs> who's going to speak yeah. for them. yeah, I mean, this is it, it's, it I mean my job's a full time role, yeah. but I am supported by um, a police officer who yeah. has the LGBT remit as well cool. she's not full time in that LGBT role, but it's a full time police officer okay. so um, and this is the thing is that uh, it's not limited to me just sticking mm. up for the LGBT because so many police officers themselves were LGBT, mm. so kind of, I think there's there's this perception that the police are um, male, and they're straight, and mm. they're white. Um, certainly, yeah, we still have a lot of male officers. Um, unfortunately, we are predominantly white, that's mm. something that absolutely needs to change. But you'd be surprised how many aren't straight, mm. um, and so the amount of times uh, people ask for an LGBT officer to come, mm. um, we just send who can come, because we. Yeah. that's just how it works. But it's quite likely you would have an anti officer come, and anyway, just because that's how many we have.
0: Have you found since? Um, how long have you been doing the role? Four years now. Have you found that your perception of so? Kind of coming back to that question of violence that we were talking about before, because it connects to this um, this event this weekend. Um, have you found like has it been surprising to you what you've seen? Okay. Because see, Cause, so you're with the police, so you are dealing with people who are going to be the victims of crime I presume like that's yeah. that's who you're mostly interacting with has it surprised you the scale of of that or has it surprised you the lack of the scale of that like is, is there a difference between what your perception of what it would be and what the reality is
1: yeah I think so I mean I can't to be honest I can't remember how I felt four yeah. years ago before it started um, there's, there's things that we know, there's things we know academically through lots of research and there's things we know sort of anecdotally as well mm. what we definitely know is that hate crime in particular and when we talk about hate crime we're talking about any type of crime so whether that's um, theft or assault mm. or burglary mm. murder whatever what have you um, if it's motivated by hostility or prejudice against a particular group so in this instance lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans people um, then that is a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so we know that hate crime is massively underreported mm-hmm. um, and that the reports that we get in of crimes is just a small proportion of those that are likely to have actually occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, quite often you see these surveys and it's, the ballpark figure is probably about uh, at least three quarters, two thirds, um, sometimes even higher, four fifths of crimes go under reported and yeah. people just aren't reporting it. So um, we unfortunately I'm not that I'd ever want to see more crimes happening mm-hmm. but when we see the the number of crimes rise that to us is good news because it suggests yeah. that people are actually reporting it. Um, so,
0: I mean cuz I feel that I probably probably wouldn't recognize something that was worthy of being reported. Or would feel that because there's a there's a definite feeling of like not wanting to take up people's time, lack of trust in the police as well, of course, but um, but also just kind of yeah, I don't know. When I when I have received abuse in the street, I know that 100% of the time, what I do is I push it down and I get, and I carry on, and I'm aware that that's almost definitely not a healthy way of dealing with it. But that, in, but that in some in some back of my mind, I still have a little voice that goes, "Yeah, yeah, you're, that's fair, that's fair," and that's the hardest thing. I think um, oh, I forget who coined it. Maybe it's Julia Serrano or someone like that. But the cop in the head, you know, this internal policing that we have of, have of ourselves. Um, what like what is the process and yeah. what it should be being reported? Well, this is it. So I think this. Um,
1: There's loads of stuff that people don't recognise as being Mm. a crime, full stop. So, um, when I tell people that verbal abuse on the street is a crime, people are like, "Oh, what? Really?" Yeah, but it is. Um, It's a relatively new crime in the grand scheme of things. It it comes out of the 1986 Public Order Act. But Mm. if if you're walking down the street or just standing in the street or what have you, and someone verbally abuses you, um, that is a public—that's a crime. It's a Public Order Act Mm -hmm. offence. And police, the police's job is to deal with that. Mm. So um, the the sort of the easy way of saying how to deal with it, you give us a call. One oh one is the uh, national non-emergency number, and Mm -hmm. you always get patched into your local force. Or nine 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 if if it's happening then and there, Mm. or if you're you're likely to get hurt, like Mm -hmm. under threat of violence. Um, Or you can now these days um, report online and things like that. Mm -hmm. but it, it, however you go about reporting, I think it's really important to report it. Mm. Um, because so many people say this to me, it's just like, oh, well, you know, it's just, it's just someone shouting something. It's, yeah. it's not worth it. I don't want to waste police time. Mm-hmm. Police aren't going to take it seriously anyway. I find it really interesting what you just said about that voice in the head. Mm. And it's, it's, to me, it sounds like internalized transphobia. Mm. Uh, the other being internalized homophobia. Where yeah. People think it's fair game that's that's happened to them. It's absolutely not fair game. Mm. And um, if we kind of transfer it to kind of other sort of hate crimes of a similar variety, I don't think anyone would think it's acceptable for someone to shout a racist slur mm. or um, any other kind of slur towards any um, minority group. Mm. So why is it okay for them to be doing that to us mm. as LGBT people? It's not okay. Um, I mean, certainly there's, there's issues that need to, that are perennial, they need to be um, overcome over time. Part of my role is to sort of help people report mm. and give them that advice. Um, and I hear it so many times that people uh, worry that they're not going to te- get taken seriously. Yeah. Um, and there is that trust and confidence issue. And mm. It wasn't too long ago that the police were um, going into uh, toilets and arresting gay men, mm. gay bisexual men, I so should say. Um, or they were deliberately harassing trans people and mm. gay people um, for just being themselves. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, for the most part, that time has gone mm. um, and it is a case of demonstrating to communities that we have changed as, as an organisation mm. and that we um, want to
0: support and look after uh, LGBT people. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling quite emotional hearing you talk about this because I feel like I do get abuse in the street and it's never... It's literally never occurred to me to call it in. Or, like, where to where to even put that. And I sort of feel like maybe... Maybe I will next time. Like, I'm assuming there's going to be a next time. There probably will be a next time. But maybe I will, just as an, as an exercise. Um, and it will be interesting to see... To see where that goes. I'm, like, right... So, behind you, directly behind you, we're in the green room at the Marlborough Theatre, is the doodle wall that I drew for Trans Pride last year which has been folded up and in, in the corner here um, and I just put it up to be a bit of soundproofing but um, somewhere on there is a drawing of a police officer which I drew because it's basically it, it, the doodle thing is a record of conversations that I had through the day and I spoke to a, um, a trans woman at Trans Pride last year and she said she'd just spoken to a police officer and the police officer had commented on how great she looked. She was maybe in her 60s, I'd say, and the police officer had given her a compliment about how great she looked. And she said that she'd turned around and said to them, like, thank you, and by the way, do you know this is the place? Where, where was the name of the place where it happened? Dorset Gardens. Dorset Gardens. She was like, do you, this is where she'd first come out in women's clothes 40 years previously and she said to the copper it's interesting if you and i had met 40 years ago you'd have arrested me and i thought that was just the like the best response like t- you know, to it and such a like so much i mean next year being 50 years of the Legalisation since the legalization of homosexuality act um so much having changed in such a short Such a short space of time, and you know, within generations, within like less than generations, this this shift of um, you know what decriminalization. Someone else is also on that drawing somewhere, a drawing of a rat, because they said also of Dorset Gardens. We used to be like the rats scurrying around the edge of the garden here, which was like crazy observation versus that kind of feeling of taking up space that trans pride had. so, so, this event that's going on o- over the weekend is direct is directly addressing this. Um, so, if, I'm going to explain this in the introduction so because I keep referring to it and then it will be in people's minds, but just to um, reiterate, this is something that people can drop into between one and five all across this bank holiday weekend and share stories um, about Safety and about antisocial behaviour that, that have been faced by LGBTQ people around Brighton and Hove. And there's a huge map that has been beautifully drawn onto a duvet. I think this idea of a safety blanket and um, a safety quilt. Uh, and so, across those three days, as people come and they talk about Areas where they have experienced antisocial behavior that's going to be stitched into this quilt so that by the end of Monday um, And I'm going to have a conversation with Rosanna who's facilitating it on Monday as well there's going to be some sort of representation of where perhaps particular hotspots are where perhaps kind of um, People do feel safe don't feel safe whatever but with the aim of highlighting this exact question of unreported crime and this has been funded right by the, the yeah, police yeah it's, it's been, been funded
1: by um, the police and crime commissioner for okay. Sussex um, the the commissioner gets a, a budget of, of her own and um, she, the way she's been dividing up this past few years we're, we're having an election so I can't speak too much because I'm under PURDA but um, is to have a community fund and people could apply to so okay. this is one of the things that um has been applied to, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, which is really great. I just kind of think it's um, it's an interesting use of kind of the police budget in that yeah. sense. And I don't mean interesting in the sense of kind of like this is a question mark. But mm. Kind of, I find it. I find community safety is a topic mm. um, interesting in how you kind of play it. So um, I the way that I approach my job is that when I do liaison work with people I get involved in lots of different projects and things mm-hmm. like that um, and I do some of these projects on, on work time rather than just necessarily my free time sometimes I straddle the two mm-hmm. um, but whatever I do I always argue well it's to do with community safety mm-hmm. so even trans can sport I see as being to do with the community yeah, safety yeah. because I figure healthier more confident more assertive people are going to feel safer mm-hmm. and be, be able to respond to things better, they're more likely to take an assertive response rather than a, a sort of uh, passive one. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to pick up the phone and say, do you know what, that's not right, I'm calling the police. Yeah. Um, or if they don't want to call the police, they'll, they'll find somewhere somewhere else to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it does all come back to, to community safety when we, we create strong communities. Mm-hmm. So I think community safety isn't necessarily just about giving people panic alarms yeah. and having that sort of reactive response to it, but it actually has to be a um, developing mm. strength within communities mm. to make feel safe. Well, I want
0: to feel that like, when, if I experience antisocial behaviour, that it isn't down to me to fight back or to you know, hit a, an alarm, but that I can turn to someone else who's around and expect with a fair chance that that person's going to take my side rather than the side of the perpetrator. And I think that, you know, that's definitely something that I feel or don't feel depending on on where I am. And I guess that's true of, of everything always, but...
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, working within criminal justice can be quite a frustrating mm. sort of area because I want people to come and report crime to us. Mm. But there's, there's a sort of catch to it all. Mm. Um, and I, is that we can only work with the evidence that's presented, Mm -hmm. so um, if we can't prove that something's happened to someone, Mm -hmm. our hands are tied, we Mm -hmm. can't do anything about it. We might completely um, believe the victim um, and have no reason to doubt them, but unless we can actually prove it, Mm -hmm. there's there's very little we can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the criminal justice system isn't very much geared up for taking the interests of victims in because even Um, when we do have evidence and we can say we'll take it to court we'll punish the offender um the victim is still left standing a little bit just like well i've been hurt really hurt yeah yeah you're actually focusing on the person who hurt me rather than me um so it, it it's a kind of it's, it's quite an interesting and, and quite difficult sort of arena for, mm-hmm. for everyone to work in. Um, so if, I'm, if you will permit me, if mm. I can talk about restorative justice yeah, very briefly. Of course. Um, I don't know if it's something you've ever heard of before. Mm. Um, it's, uh, restorative justice is whereby the victim actually gets to have a say mm-hmm. and gets to have a voice within what's happened to them mm-hmm. and what's going to happen. Uh, With with them and with the perpetrator Mm -hmm. of of an offence, Um, it's a really old idea um, that's been knocking around for centuries, if not longer. Um, And there's lots of research to say that um, uh, people from um, New Zealand and uh, I think Australia as well, so Aboriginal people. um, um, Maori people were doing it throughout their societies for mm-hmm. probably thousands of years. Mm-hmm. I think possibly uh, C- Canadian um, culture as well. Mm-hmm. It's become a bit more in vogue within sort of the Western world over the last sort of 10-15 years, and certainly within Brighton I Hove, it's become quite a, a hot topic that a lot of us have been engaging in in yeah. our work. Um, a lot of people within Brighton Police and within sort of generally within sort of Sussex have been trained in restorative justice. Mm-hmm. And it's essentially where um, someone that's been hurt or harmed by mm. an offence mm-hmm. um, gets to have a say in how um, that is dealt with. So mm. they'll still, we'll still go through the, the old-fashioned court system, get the perpetrator up in front of a judge and mm. um, um, punish them in that punitive sense that we do with criminal yeah. justice. With restorative justice, though, we can get... Um, depending on what the victim wants, and the victim absolutely gets to direct how this goes. You can have anything between reparations being made between the the victim and and the perpetrator, Mm -hmm. so that could be if your your fence gets broken, they'll fix the fence. Mm -hmm. Um, To uh, If you want to, meeting face-to-face as a harmed person, the victim, and the the harm doer, the, Mm -hmm. the perpetrator. To talk about what happened yeah. and talk about the feelings about what happened yeah. and um, mm. to d- together come up with a solution about how to make things right. It's not for everyone. Mm. A lot of people kind of completely shudder at the thought of ever mm. meeting face to face with the person that's hurt them. Um, but for those that do do it, there's
0: currently we've got a super high satisfaction, of yeah. 100%. Wow. Um, I can imagine that it would be, because I mean, there's no. Closure. There's no anything with w- without that, and I imagine that held in the right way and a kind of facilitated conversation that could be incredib- incredible, incredible mm. um, for providing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. yes, I mean, it's 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 very. Um, uh, what's the word? It's very planned. Mm. So there's everything gets taken account for, and the person, the perpetrator, has to take responsibility for what they did. Mm. There's no good bringing in someone who won't take responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't is claiming they didn't do it because that's just going to further harm the victim Mm -hmm. but if we have a situation where someone's claimed responsibility said yeah you know what i did that i own up to it yeah then you can have a really transformative um moment of bringing people together yeah um and what's really great about it is that it works Mm. and it, it not only does it give the victim a sense of they were included. Mm. It gives them a sense of closure, because mm. people when they've been a victim of crime, regardless of what type of crime it is, they have loads of questions about mm. why me? Why did this happen to me? Um, which might then linger with them for years mm. and really have such a detrimental effect on their, their well-being and yeah, mental yeah. health, their ability to socialise with other people and have all these knock-on effects. Um, so by meeting with the other person they get these questions answered. Um, but they also in that process see the perpetrator rather than this big monster that mm-hmm. hurt them see them for their humanity and their vulnerability and, and it, it's, it's really quite, it almost I, I get quite evangelical mm-hmm. about it because I see how powerful it can be yeah, yeah, yeah. and it generally does change offenders and reduces reoffending offending mm-hmm. massively um, so we've been trialling this with uh, victims of hate crime mm-hmm. um, and It can be done for for hate crimes, Mm -hmm. Um, it still needs to be properly sort of planned and managed. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the moment I'm working on one where a couple of gay men were uh, verbally abused by another male in a park um, who just shouted at them because they were holding hands, Mm -hmm. so we're we're working on a restorative solution for that. Um, and it's it's worked um, in lots of different sort of scenarios. Mm-hmm. It can even work in, um, there's some really interesting cases where it's worked in rapes and things like mm-hmm. that. So even wow. crimes that you think would be impossible to mm-hmm. do for this scenario do actually work and yeah. it's very powerful.
0: I guess it's taking care of um, what happens next and taking responsibility for what happens next rather than dealing only with, with the event. I mean, and that being the core and most important part of, of that entire journey and recognising that, you know, it doesn't stop with the point of which whatever the crime was doesn't stop there. Yeah. Now that sounds yeah. incredible. Absolutely. So, I mean, and that's the thing. So kind of bring it back to the
1: reporting side, mm. it's just like I always tell people absolutely please report everything. Mm. Um, and even if it's you're not the victim, if you've witnessed it, mm. report it. Um I, I accept that some people will say, well, you know what, if, if I reported everything that happened, I'd be on the phone all day. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's up to your own personal mm. um, decisions whether, whether you report things, but I would always urge people, please report, um, yeah. and talk, and you know, talk, work with us mm. to find the right outcome. Mm. Um, people want to report things, but then won't support us
0: to do anything. Yeah. Um, sometimes we need to take statements and things like that. Um, I mean, there's so there's so many barriers, aren't there to to this? Like it's it's more than we it is more than we can get into here. But it's, it's so it's so huge? And I'm pretty sure that this is gonna come out across this weekend, where there's three days to um, to look at this. But you know, the barriers be they cultural or through gender or through you know education or whether you feel that because there's a big kind of class. Thing that goes on in terms of who feels the police are on whose side and um, or where you come from in the country I mean look, we're in the week with the Hillsborough stuff going on and like it's there's so many facets to people's connection I think to penal justice um, but I'm may, um, maybe a good place of starting is you know are these kind of interventions whereby this isn't being hosted by the police, it's being hosted by the Marlborough, by Pink Fringe. Rosanna is a queer artist who's gonna be holding that space and holding it beautifully, I know. And that uh, it's another way of reporting that. So there, yeah, there's call 999, there's call 101. Yeah. Um, but then there's also, you know, for, the, for this weekend, there's come down and, and share those experiences and have them stitched into a quilt, which sounds kind of wanky, arty farty, but I think you know it's it's another way of holding a space and actually not making people sit in a telephone queue and in a in you know in that cold way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think for me the most important thing is just
1: don't hold on to it. Tell someone. Yeah. So whether you want to tell the police or not, yeah, that's up to you. Just tell someone. Tell your your best friend. Tell someone you met down the pub. Tell your yeah. partner. Um, Tell it to the sea. Even yeah, yeah, yeah. come and tell it to the safety girl. Because I think it's that holding on to that harm that's yeah. happened to you. It's probably the worst thing about all of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, to throw some statistics. I mean, like there's some research done in the 90s about uh, victims of hate crime. So not that there's an average crime or an average mm. victim at all. Everyone's individual in this respect but they say the average crime takes two years to get over mm-hmm. so obviously we're not talking about very serious crimes like, but sort of thefts and things mm-hmm. like that for hate crime it's five years wow. so it's more than double it takes and that's because of the such particular impact it has on the victim Yeah. Um, and that's to do with that sense of identity yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think for that when you're holding on to all of that mm-hmm. pain and that hurt and those questions it's so destructive I mean, I've been a victim of hate crime in the past, and um, it, I, I, you, could, you could chart it, I went on such a downward mm. trajectory as a result of it. Mm. My confidence got lost, um, and it had a knock-on effect on loads yeah. of different things, and I think by talking to other people about it, it was sort of sharing the pain mm. a bit, um, and helped sort of mm. you know, move the pain away from from, yeah. From me and from the community. I
0: think you see it in our community, you see it all the time with I think particularly the trans community, it's where we are in terms of visibility. I mean, you know, why events like Trans Pride are so incredible to see trans people en masse together and have take strength in numbers. And but there's always, I feel like in these spaces, a kind of moment where everyone just breathes out because there's this constant feeling of guardedness that of, I mean I've said it like a number of times in this conversation of like expecting something of expecting something of feeling of deserving something even of waiting for the next time that it's going to happen um, yeah, really important to share well hopefully people will come and share this week so. this weekend yeah. well uh, so this is go- this conversation to quite long I hope you don't mind <laughs> no, no, I think it's really um, <laughs> it's really important but kind of beginning to beginning to wrap up, but I do want to ask will any of that so I think two things are on my mind one is confidentiality of anything that people come and share and I know that anything that is shared in that space will be anonymous and will be confidential and will be all of those things I think it's, it's in the moment, in the space, the stories can be shared, but I know what's going to be recorded is the location and what and, and what happened is not going to be like names attached to anything. So that's going to be confidential. Um, because of that, does that, will that quilt become an admissible statistic for you, for the police? Will it be something that you can say, okay, we funded this, we've got this back. We can see that X place in Brighton is a hotspot of... Abuse. It would seem that we can then action something based on that.
1: That's a really interesting question. Hmm. Um, it will certainly help enlighten us. Hmm. I mean, the problem being is that we are, to a certain extent, we are intelligence-led.
0: Yeah.
1: So, um, as an example, we get anecdotal evidence that there's hate crime happening in a certain part of town, and everyone's saying, "Oh, you can't go to that part of town because." Yeah. It's a it's a homophobic, transphobic hotspot, and then you look on the police system for that area of town, and there's there's not a single incident, mm. and so we can't act on stuff unless we know what's going on there. Mm. Um, so I think it'll be interesting seeing this this safety map to see what areas of town get highlighted, mm. um, whether we'll be able to actually action that in itself. Um, I think generally we need to kind of a bit, have a bit more specifics on okay. that. And something I've observed is that people hold on to experiences for quite a long time. Mm. So we can only really work with stuff that's relatively recent. Mm. Um, if something happened several years ago, okay. that's not. We can't really use that because yeah. communities and people that live there and people that offend and things like that change and evolve quite quickly. Yeah. So. Um, Unless, of course, it's the same person who's been doing it for the past ten years, and that's a different story. So, I think it will help enlighten us, Mm -hmm. certainly, and will help contribute to to what we know about um,
0: issues that are happening in Brighton Mm. & Hove. And I guess there'll be, hopefully, a chance for anyone who does come and share stuff to learn what they can do as well and to be you know may, maybe off the back of that some people will then feel they can go and they can report stuff or they can report stuff in the future which yeah. which would be a, which would seem to be a positive step forward yeah, as well based on absolutely. what you've said
1: yeah
0: um i've got a crowbar it in because otherwise we'll miss this juicy topic We've been talking about, like, violence, talking about, like, things. Is there an end in sight? Is there the, like, so the end is a total full stop, which is as problematic as a binary, because it gives, well, it gives a binary, doesn't it? But before and after. But is, is there an end in your, within this kind of conversation about antisocial behaviour towards LGBT people? Do, do you see an end? Do you see some kind of end? Like, what's the...
1: Oh, I want to be, I really so badly want to be optimistic about mm. this and say, yes, there's going to be an end. I think the truth is, um, humans are just always at each other, mm. so what may well happen is that uh, queer people will stop being targeted, mm-hmm. but some something will come to replace it instead. Yeah. So, um, I think even if there is an end for the time being, there's always going to be a sequel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, Nicely put. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, but, uh, you know, I think we can do everything we can to, to put a stop to things, yeah. um, and actually, you know, to be optimistic, things have changed a lot. Yeah. Um, we've, we're seeing a change in the, in the, the type of mm. crimes that are happening to people, so some things are coming to an end. Right. Um, oh dear, <laughs> cracking the floor. Yeah. Oh. Uh, it's that's a difficult one to say the end. Yeah,
0: I wish I could make it nice and succinct. I mean, like you say, I mean, it's 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 a but it, all of these things are an evolution, aren't they, and a and a, and a progression, and as you say, when so, some things come to an end and other things step in, and I think almost with that question of an end. So, for instance, maybe if you are a cis gay man who adheres to masculine gender norms, maybe you might experience less harassment now than you would have done 50 years ago, perhaps, but that's then about being, there's, a, there's problems with that as well, because it's yeah. the way that society is appropriating something. And there's something really interesting
1: that in, in sort, of, sort of LGBT community politics and mm. queer politics is this idea that for some reason straight, uh, sorry, not straight, White, cisgendered, gay, probably middle-class men Mm. aren't victims of Mm. crime because that's categorically not true. And I see, uh, month in, month out, it's actually they're victims of crime. Mm. It's probably they're reporting more than any other group, Mm -hmm. but still, they are still very much vulnerable and have been victim to a homophobic society. Mm. So um, I think we need to be careful not to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater in that yeah. sense. And as much as there's some really particular need for um, for trans people and, and those that don't fit in with, with normativity, mm. whether it's normativity or heteronormativity, to realise that those that are relatively more privileged within our communities, mm. they're also being targeted and vulnerable to mm. us as well. Yeah. And that we kind of if we start pretending otherwise, mm. that's damaging all of us mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't really further our fight for oppre- against oppression yeah, by saying that they're not being oppressed either. Yeah.
0: So we need to be really careful in how we frame some of these, these I opinions. mean I think when I say that there's definitely not there's definitely not to infer an end to that oppression but just whether there's a what people are looking for in that moment and specifically that kind of in the street antisocial behaviour but then that's like you say targeted at people holding hands still it's and it comes like back onto some of those things we were talking about right at the beginning about misogyny and about um stepping out transgress transgressing and that kind of you know for two men to hold hands within our society is, is still a transgression and so you're being punished for the transgression rather than for the Act in a way. And that absolutely it is coming back to that because mm. that still is uh, a misogy-
1: I think it's still a misogynistic thing mm. because two men holding hands is seen as well, one or both of them are acting in a feminine mm. way, uh, which is coming from the misogyny, and that's why we need to target them and attack yeah. them. Because um, curiously, you don't see, and I'm sure it does happen, but you don't see it the, quite the same amount of when it's two women holding hands. Mm-hmm. Getting targeted, and yeah. getting abused—that um, somehow is more permissible than two men. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is the the dynamics of it are really, really interesting, and I think if we are going to find an end, an end would be by really um, dismantling this sort of patriarchal system, not replacing it with a matriarchal one, but dismantling mm-hmm. what we've got um, that takes a that dismantles misogyny. Yeah. yeah. So we essentially my politics are we need to fight against all the sexism yeah in order to to break down the transphobia mm-hmm.
0: and, and this is i mean this is where the uh, this is why the lgb and the t should be together right because this yeah, is totally the thing it's not apples and pears it's it's people who are affected by transgressions against yeah. gender you know for whatever reason
1: completely agree i mean my, my argument has always been is that yes sexual orientation is completely different to gender identity mm. But actually at the same time they're totally interlinked with yeah. each other, because what is your sexual orientation about if it's not about gender identity? Because mm-hmm. when we're talking about sexual orientation, we don't talk about whether someone's vanilla or kinky. Yeah, we're talking yeah. about whether they're into guys or girls. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it totally is interwoven, and essentially at the end of the day, when we're at the hands of uh, someone perpetrating an anti-LGBT hate crime, mm-hmm. It's because they see our queerness, whether yeah. it's our queerness and our gender identity or in our sexual
0: orientation. And that's what, I mean. That's where the chip I have as a trans woman in this conversation is, is because of that, it's that thing of, I'm going to say this and then can apologise for it afterwards, but the, the two guys, our archetypal white cisgender gay men holding hands can choose to not hold hands as they walk through the... Dodgier area and therefore there's a kind of like assumption that they can opt out of being visible or opt into being visible, whereas my experience is that there is no op there is no opting out because you're visible whether you want to be visible or you don't want to be visible and that's a kind of privileged thing. but I also accept. That that's fucked up to say you've got to not hold hands <laughs> to step out of that, and then the, the, and the damage that recognizing, okay, we better let go of our hands now, otherwise we, we're going to get there's going to be stuff's going to go down is is huge and like and traumatic and not to be yeah, belittled.
1: Exactly, and I, and I think this is It's is that we really need to avoid playing oppression Olympics in that sense yeah. because undoubtedly, <laughs> although that sounds like a fun event. <laughs> Or not. <laughs> um, undoubtedly, um, privilege has a huge amount of play, and yeah. undoubtedly, um, as a trans woman who, in, who are not necessarily saying you, but mm. um, who doesn't pass, mm. has does not have the same privilege as a as a cisgendered man who mm. doesn't have that. Mm. But it shouldn't, it shouldn't be about who's got the worst impressions, but about actually, it is so fucked up that you yeah, can't yeah. hold your hands, and we should be aiming for everyone to be able to hold hands, yeah. and everyone to just walk down the street without getting attacked. Yeah, yeah. um, because it's, yeah, it just, it's, it's, it's just absolutely not right. Yeah, we, we want to be getting the best for all of us. Yeah,
0: It just takes up so much time, right? It's I such a imagine. waste of time. Ah. Oh. Thank you <laughs> okay, welcome. thank you so much. This is like the longest conversation but i've i've been really happy having it um and by happy i mean not always happy, but happy it's it's happening and um I'll say when I wrap up in the in the in the outfit but um i do hope people come along this weekend and that is l g b t q Etc. so for anyone listening to this podcast who knows people in Brighton who might come along, you know, please do share it. Um, final thing, I need a topic for the next conversation, like a loose topic. You can see how well I adhere to those topics, of course, but um, it can be anything, it doesn't have to be trans-focused at all. Do you have a topic I can take forward? Oh. Sort of like podcast consequences. Yeah, see, I'm still stuck on the holding hands thing. Okay, um, but I'm not quite sure how to turn that into a topic. Well, it could just be holding hands, which knowing yeah. who I'm going to be speaking to next would be an incredibly interesting okay, topic. So I'm going to stop you there and just take <laughs> it. Um, thank you so much for, for being here. Um,
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers. <laughs>
0: So there we have it. By far the longest episode we've had, but I think it was really important to take that time. It's Saturday now, and the safety map is up and running. It's a beautiful space. There's tea, there are comfortable places to sit, and there's plenty of support. So please spread the word, and if you're in Brighton, come along or follow the activity online through the hashtag safety map. You don't have to be trans to come, or LGBT even. It is open to all. And there will also be a follow-on to some of that information gathered, which is that in a few weeks, Nando Messias will be bringing his incredible promenade performance, The Sissy's Progress, to the Marlborough. It's a response to an act of homophobic hatred that Nando experienced, and it's part dance theatre, part walking performance, and it leads its audience out into the streets with a live marching band. And the route to the performance uh, will be dictated in part by the areas that are highlighted in this map. And that's on the 7th of May, which is next Saturday. If this episode has brought anything up for you, then I'll put some links in the information for support. But please do try and find a way of sharing that with the police, with friends, with a third party, or through a web service. As Rory suggests, tell it to the sea or to a pillow or to a cat. But don't feel you need to hold on to it. Don't feel that you deserved it. Thank you to Rory and to the Marlborough. I'm gonna be returning next week to reflect on this event with Rosanna Cade, who's facilitating it all weekend. So we'll see what comes up. And in the meantime, please do share the event and take care and thank you for listening. See you next time.